This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and happy Easter if you're celebrating. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. A report out Tuesday from Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer says the provincial PCs at Queen's Park are on track to balance the budget by 2023-24 and run a $7.1 billion surplus three years later. Now, you'd think that the Doug Ford Tories would be boasting about this good news and exclaiming that this report shows that they are good financial managers. But as FAO Peter Weltman points out, this could change very soon, depending on how much more cash the Tories promise during the election campaign. So how did the progressive conservatives arrive at these positive numbers? Is it because of cuts to services as the opposition leaders are charging? Libby was joined by the financial accountability officer himself to find out. If I had come on two years ago and said to you, in May of 2020, when everything was shutting down, when gasoline was at 62 cents a liter, when oil futures were in negative territory, that we would be running a $7 billion surplus in 2026-27, I think you guys would have, you know, people would have looked at me and said, what planet is he from? So yes, it's been a huge change. And the reason, the biggest reason for it is on the revenue side. <clears throat> so what happened ultimately is that all levels of government, but especially the federal government, came through with a ton of money to help individuals and businesses cope with the sudden you know, drop in the economy. And as we're coming out of the pandemic, people had a lot of money, a lot of, not everybody, but a lot of people had a lot of money saved up. Businesses ended up protecting a lot of their profits. So tax revenues and sales tax revenues went way up, way higher than we were forecasting two years ago. Is part of that because we've had such high inflation? Part of it is because we've had high inflation. So tax revenues are largely forecast based on what we call nominal GDP. So that means how fast is the economy growing with inflation accounted for? And that is large, that's driving a lot of the, uh, the increase in revenues, but also probably actually more so is just the overall volume of activity of uh, economic activity. I mean, people are, you know, we, we have unemployment rates that are uh, the lowest they've ever been. A lot of people are back to work. The vast majority. Uh, the economy really is on a tear, and then you add inflation on top of that. That makes for an extraordinary period of high tax revenues. Where do interest rates fit in all of this? You know, we just had a half a percentage hike today, and we've been warned that they have to go higher to fight this inflation. We're expecting higher interest rates. We're expecting interest rates to go up by a full percentage point this year. And we've already seen a half point move today. So we may may be a little, you know, maybe we're a little light on that. We'll have to wait and see. But we do expect rates to climb over the next five years. Um, Actually, a little shorter period than that, partly to combat the the increased inflation rate and the overheating of the, uh, well, not overheating, but the very, very strong uh, market right now that's hitting capacity. So that is factored into our projection. 
I'm really happy that because the government delayed its normal budget because of the way things worked out, we're able to get ahead of things. So we're able to provide MPPs and citizens and voters with a clean picture as to here's what the next five years looks like. And whatever happens between now and the election, whatever promises have been promised, whatever gets passed, that, that gets added to or subtracted from the bottom line. We'll see what the promises are, and we've included a table in our report to help people calculate the cost of some of these promises. Right now, we're looking pretty good as a province. The economy looks very strong. The fiscal situation is has dramatically improved and has been much stronger than anybody ever expected from two years ago. But going forward, we still have challenges. So not only do we have short-term risks with potentially inflation, supply chains, wars, etc., you know, maybe future pandemics, but we are in a province that is aging. And as people get older, they do become less productive. They do produce less from an economic point of view, and they consume more health care. So once we get past 20, you know, basically 2930, as a report that we did a couple weeks, a couple months ago shows, then we start to get into a situation where we start to spend more money on programs than we're collecting in revenue. So that has to be kept in mind um, as we get into an election period, as voters start to see what's on offer. You know, there are all of these moving parts. There's the revenue side, the expenditure side, and we have a debt side that we have to keep on top of as well. Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer, Peter Weltman. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. More now on provincial politics and the upcoming Ontario election campaign. Our Fight Back strategy panelists suggested on Tuesday that opposition-minded voters will decide who is better placed to take down Doug Ford's government, NDP leader Andrea Horvath or Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. That same day, Horvath appealed to Ontarians to vote strategically for her party to ensure Ford is not re-elected, while Del Duca reacted by saying he doesn't think Ontario voters embrace strategic voting. Libby went to two other experts to get their perspectives on this. John McEtitian is a conservative activist and political consultant as president of Bradgate Research Group. And Bob Richardson is a liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations. Bob, first of all, what do you make of this direct appeal from Andrea Horvath to liberal mm-hmm. voters saying, vote for me, I can take Doug Ford down? Well, she's doing what she should be doing as a leader. She needs to expand the pie if she's got a chance to hold her seats and make gains. Uh, the only way she's going to do that is if she makes, you know, inroads among the liberal vote. I think uh, the conservative vote is fairly happy with the government. There may be some available uh, and there may be some greens available. But the biggest uh, her biggest path to the premier uh, premier's office goes right through the liberal party. So she's doing what she needs to do to uh, to try to build up her coalition and uh, and also protect her base. John McEtitian, what do you think? Do you agree that uh, the non-Doug Ford voters are, are weighing who is better placed to take down the government? I think that becomes an increasing dynamic over time from where it was an academic idea many years ago. Uh, but but I'd agree with uh, Del Duca that I don't think it's the you know uh, in, anywhere near the dominant uh, um, calculation that the NDP would love. 
you know, uh, Andrea's, uh, you know, fighting a war on two fronts as she mounts her farewell tour in this uh, upcoming campaign. I, I don't think she's announced a farewell tour. Well, I mean, it's, it's she. She's not going to be around after this one, you know, unless she becomes premier. And uh, I don't know anybody who's taking money on that bet. But for for her, she's got a government that, uh, despite the pandemic and despite, um, you know, uh, all the people who hate Ford, uh, he's done a reasonably good job, and uh, in the, the province economically is in a pretty good place. And uh, subject to him, uh, the only wild card for me is if he brings back another mask mandate, then I think uh, everything's uh, off the table. But uh, unless that happens, which I don't think it will, uh, she's fighting a a reasonably competent conservative government on one side. And the reality of a new liberal leader who's facing his first election, uh, which is always a challenge for any new leader, but uh, she's also remembering that she half of her vote in the last election, what propelled her into opposition status, was liberals who said uh, goodbye to Kathleen Wynne. And that's over. That's done. So do those people go home to the Liberal Party, in which case Andrea's uh, seats get uh, decimated and more? Or do they say, we, we like the job she's been doing? And, you know, like the last election was an aberration. And I, I think most people are predicting that the numbers are going to be closer to what they've been traditionally, which means she's going to lose a lot of seats unless she can come up with a, with a novel way of telling people, keep this person in place. It, it's kind of fascinating for the crazy uh, world we've lived in in the last two years. Uh, we're 51 days away from an election, and uh, it's kind of way quieter than you would expect. And I think that kind of uh, favors the government. And having said that, there's 51 days for the premier or the government to make some colossal mistake. And uh, the table will be turned upside down. So we'll wait and see. Bob? Uh, I'm, I'm old school. Uh, uh, many years ago, 51 days before an election, I was uh, about to work for Premier Lynn McLeod. That did not work out uh, the way that uh, we had it planned. Mike Harris ended up uh, whooping us and went on uh, to become premier and was elected two terms. So my only point in saying that is stay tuned. A lot happens in politics. A lot can change. Uh, I suspect this government will get get reelected in some form or another, Uh, but who will be the official opposition and who gets that number of seats to be determined, and elections matter, and that's coming up real soon. Libby's conversation with Bob Richardson, liberal strategist and senior counsel to national public relations, and John McEtitian, conservative activist and political consultant as president of Bradgate Research Group. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, how to detect COVID in wastewater. We'll hear from an expert microbiologist next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. You've been hearing a lot in recent weeks about COVID cases detected in our wastewater. On Thursday, we learned from University of Guelph microbiology professor Dr. Lawrence Goodridge what exactly is involved in the process of checking wastewater data 
and how this determines an accurate estimate of the number of daily COVID cases. We also checked in with epidemiologist Dr. Timothy Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and York Regional Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Barry Pekis, to get their perspectives on where we're at in the sixth wave of COVID. First, though, I asked Dr. Goodrich about how to find COVID in wastewater. The province of Ontario operates what's called the Wastewater Surveillance Initiative, which is a program that includes 13 universities across the province, representing approximately 75% of the Ontario population. And um, in this program, wastewater is collected from wastewater treatment plants in a number of cities and regions, uh, approximately 174 wastewater treatment plants. Uh, And the wastewater is uh, collected every uh, 24-hour time intervals, and that is uh, taken to the labs at the universities where it is concentrated and the nucleic acid, the the RNA for the virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, is is isolated and detected by PCR, which is the same type of test that, 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 you know, people can... uh, get tested for clinically when, when they are suspected of having the, um, the the virus. And then we also do genomic sequencing on the samples to determine the types of variants, such as Omicron, for example, uh, that is expected to be in the uh, wastewater. The data is modeled uh, by the Ontario Science Table, and what we come up with is a, is a range. You know, it's estimated that there are approximately 100,000, maybe 100 to 120,000 people um, that are being infected each day. But it's important to understand that unlike clinical testing where individuals are tested so you you can have a a precise number of of the numbers, even if not everybody is tested clinically, um, with wastewater testing, it it really is uh, giving uh, an approximation. Dr. Sly... Is there a way to determine or approximate how many of these cases are asymptomatic and how big of a role vaccines are playing in these asymptomatic results? We've known from the very beginning, if you go way back, more than two years ago, if you can cast your mind back to those early days, we've known since the very beginning that the incidence rate, the thing that people were looking at all the time, how many new cases that we've got today, the incidence rate uh, was really missing a great deal of the positive virus people, between 40 and 70 percent of the people who were, had the virus in them were not uh, showing any signs or symptoms. And that's been the case all the way through. Uh, so the asymptomatic rate was important. Now, the thing that Dr. Goodrich is just mentioning, it's worth uh, following on from that, that mm-hmm. the, the wastewater treatment does wastewater signal does include uh, the signal from asymptomatic people as well. So that's something we didn't have with, uh, with just sort of try, trying to look for symptoms and people who were ill going around. Are, are the asymptomatic cases primarily happening because of the vaccines? Oh, probably largely. But I think that last question should be answered by our clinician, yes. uh, Dr. Pecos. So over to him, I think. Okay, Dr. Pecos, you're on. What we're trying to do right now from a, a public health practice perspective is use that wastewater data in order to um, get a handle on what we actually need to do in terms of masking, in terms of 
um, getting those vaccine third doses and fourth doses into people's arms and, and creating a narrative that says, you know what, things are going are, are increasing in the wastewater. We're worried about increases in hospitalization. Let's act now. So that's why it's, it's critically important to us. You know, whether people are, are asymptomatic or symptomatic, um, you know, I think that is probably related very much to, to the levels of vaccine, vaccine uh, coverage in the population. And that's great. That's what we want to see. And thankfully, while, while the wastewater and hospitalization are related and both are increasing and that hospitalization is, is threatening to increase further, what we are seeing in this wave as opposed to the fifth wave is it's not going as high as fast. And that really has to do with the number of third doses we've got. And that's why we're pushing those third and fourth doses now because we're hoping that we can continue on that trend. That was my conversation on Thursday with epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, York Regional Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Barry Pecos, and University of Guelph Microbiology Professor Dr. Lawrence Goodrich. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Think about how much food you waste. Do you buy too much, especially during the pandemic when we tried to cut back the number of shopping trips? Do you plan your meals and store your food properly? It's estimated that avoidable food waste costs the average Canadian household over $1,100 a year. Canada's food industry produces a huge amount of surplus food, and the vast majority of it is wasted rather than going to those who need it. The day after a report from Second Harvest was released, Libby was joined by Victor Plonge, head of marketing at Too Good To Go, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, senior director, agri-food analytics lab at Dalhousie University, and Lori Nickel, CEO of Second Harvest. The report we launched yesterday was really looking across the supply chain industry specific to determine how much of that surplus edible food could we actually get into the hands of people? So we know we have 61,000 charities and nonprofits in this country. How do we make sure that this great food is getting there instead of landfill or other places? Because that's its intended purpose. Where we learned that only 4% is, re- is being redirected. And so we really have an opportunity here to move a lot more of this great food into the hands of Canadians that really need it right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Charlebois, what is preventing us from doing that or preventing the industry from doing that to a greater extent? Uh, well, first of all, I think we needed a report like uh, the one we saw yesterday uh, from Second Harvest, uh, putting numbers to a problem. I think the report was actually quite powerful and, and telling uh, about the problem. Now, uh, I mean, that was I, I didn't even know how much food was not rerouted or how much of the surplus we actually weren't saving or rescuing. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible. 96% is a lot of food. And so I think what needs to happen, of course, uh, is, uh, is to think about, first of all, to know about the problem, measure it. And that's what we did with, with yesterday's report. Now we need a strategy. And, and I think a lot of it is already in the report, including better logistics. Uh, better technologies related to packaging and and more awareness, essentially, with uh, with industry as well. 
Victor Planja, Too Good to Go, tries to tackle that problem. It's an app and uh, you can get discounted food that is about to get to its best before date. So how far have you gone in terms of getting people to accept that? Whether we look at it on a global scale or we look only in, at Canada, um, I think it's safe to say that we've, we've come a very long way um, to solve that major problem that, that Laurie spoke uh, very well to. Globally, we have about 55 million people who've downloaded the app, which is, which is an incredible number across 17 markets. But more importantly for, uh, for those of us on the call here and for Canada, um, since we launched this nine months ago, um, there's more than 350,000 Canadians who've actually downloaded the app. There's more than 2,500 food businesses across Canada that have done this, um, that have also signed up. So that means local restaurants, bakeries, grocery stores, um, used bars, hotels, et cetera, et cetera. So, so all in all, uh, we've been very well accepted in, in Canada. Laurie Nickel, uh, it, it's still, it, it's pretty staggering when you see that's sort of 4%. Is is that the the part of the ledger where things can improve? Absolutely. Like so, again, we're just talking about supply chain, which is farm to hotel or restaurant. The household, there's a lot of work to do, but second harvest are really focused further up that supply chain, and so we have to provide businesses with some tangible financial benefits to ensure that they can get this food to charities and nonprofits. There's a real misconception around legal liability. In Canada, you know, we are covered by legislation in every province and territory that you can donate food in, in good faith and you'll never get sued and nobody ever has been anyway in Canada or the U.S. So there's also some regulatory and um, industry policies that are preventing donations. So I think to Sylvain's point, you know, just measuring it first, providing some solutions to industry, should have some really marketable benefits and we should be able to move the lever now that we know how big the problem is. The last IPCC report is not great news. As much as I'd like to be optimistic, we need some public policy change. And um, if you'd like to learn more, absolutely go to Second Harvest and we have lots of resources you can download. Lori Nichols, CEO of Second Harvest, Victor Plaja, head of marketing at Too Good To Go, and Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Senior Director of Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University in Halifax. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer has the most informed guests on the week's hot topics. And we also rely on you for your valued opinions. Here are some of this week's best calls. Kate in Toronto phoned about the shocking amount of food that's wasted in Canada. The more affluent you are, I think the more food gets wasted. If you are living at below the poverty line, you count every dollar of food and you make sure you use it. That's my experience. Pat in Toronto also called in on this topic. 
I was a board member of Second Harvest going back uh, more than 25 years ago. It's a great organization, and anything we can do to support this organization needs to be done. Uh, gardening has become such a thing. Uh, it has really taken off with the, the COVID. We should encourage young people to have what they had during the war, which were called victory gardens. This would, this would be so good if we could get people growing their own foods, which we can easily do in this climate. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week is Bella in Oshawa who phoned as the Fixing Long-Term Care Act came into effect about her experience as a caregiver for her husband in long-term care. I just want to let you know that I have recently had my husband admitted to the brand-new Lakeridge Gardens nursing home, but it was one struggle. My husband's been diagnosed for seven years. The last two years have been horrible between trying to get home care, which, you know, they tout home care as trying to keep them at home, but people wouldn't show up and different things, and I still work. I had to end up putting my husband in crisis care through the Lake Ridge Hospital in Oshawa, and finally on the 29th of March, he was admitted as a patient into that home. But I'll tell you, if you don't stay on top of everything and fight like the Dickens for your rights, you fall through the cracks. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fightback. The best of Fightback is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.